All right, today's guest is Shannon Etheridge, and she is a international speaker, certified life coach, and advocate for healthy sexuality with a master's degree in counseling and human relations from Liberty University. Since her mortuary days of embalming many HIV and AIDS patients, she has boldly spoken to high school and college students, single adults, and married couples about embracing a lifestyle of sexual integrity, overcoming past sexual and emotional baggage, cultivating genuine intimacy in marriage, instilling sexual values in young children. Shannon has been featured on the Today Show, The 700 Club, and dozens of other media outlets. She is also the author of 22 books, including the million-copy, best-selling Every Woman's Battle series. Welcome to Kowalski Analysis, Shannon Etheridge. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you're in Kentucky, you said, right? I am indeed. What part? I am in Richmond, right outside of Lexington. My husband is a professor at Eastern Kentucky University. That's awesome. Yeah. So are you, you just, uh, do you just travel around and speak now or, or do you do a lot of your coaching from Kentucky or how's your, what's your life set up like? Well, right now with COVID-19, I'm not traveling around and doing much of any right. speaking. I do mostly Zoom, but largely I do coaching over the phone or via Zoom and we do workshops. So we're looking forward to getting back in the swing of doing face-to-face -face workshops. We do eight to 10 women or three to four couples at a time. We have women at the well workshops or couples at the well workshops. So that's what we enjoy most. So we're looking forward to this COVID crisis being a thing of the past so we can get back to that. Mm. Yeah, no doubt. I went to my first movie last night and gosh, I don't know, six months. And it was so Isn't good. Isn't it a weird feeling? Oh, I loved it. I'm like, the things you take for granted, you know? <laughs> so good. So anyway, I'm very excited to dive into the conversation. I know my listeners are going to be excited to hear from you. A lot of people that are, are waiting or attempting to wait. And, and uh, yeah, I just can't wait to hear your insight. So before we jump into it, first question, I just want to get this off the table. Is it harder for a man or a woman to wait? Because I know I have my opinion about it. And I'm pretty outspoken that it's definitely harder for a man to not have sex than it is for a woman. But I want to hear what you have to say. Is it, What's harder? Man in response to that question, my answer is yes, period. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. harder for both men and women. I don't think that you can categorically say that it's easier for one gender versus another gender. Understand the concept, the philosophy that you got more testosterone and you're more wired that way. However, dot, dot, dot. There are many women that are also wired to be very sexual beings and there's no shame in that. And so I don't want to like give women the impression that there's something wrong or broken with them if they do have a high sex drive. Because in some couples relationships, it is actually harder for her to do the waiting than it is for him. So I think that it's situational and cultural rather than gender specific. Right. Okay. That's that fair. A safe answer. <laughs> yeah. I heard somebody asked Stefan Labossier that question and he said, he answered, it was pretty smart. He said, look, if there were two rooms and in one room was all the sex, all the freaky sex, all the different kinds of sex with all the different people. And then the other room was everything but sex. It was like tea and conversation and cuddling and all this stuff. He goes, the majority of the women would go in that room and the majority of the men would go in the other room. And I was like, <laughs> so he's like, that's how you know it's harder for a man to wait. And I'm like, Wow, he's, he's pretty much right. <laughs> well, but I do deal with a lot of couples where she is the higher drive partner and mm -hmm. he is the lower drive partner. Mm -hmm. Now that scenario that you just laid out, you're probably right. But in some relationships, men find it very difficult to either be the initiator or even the responder. And it's usually for various psychological reasons. And wow. it can be really difficult for a woman to wake up and realize she doesn't have that typical scenario. She can be standing at a party hearing all the women talk about how oh, their husbands just can't keep their hands off of them and he wants sex all the time. And she's just grinning and go along with it. But in deep down inside, she's just like reeling going, what's wrong with me right. that I can't get my husband interested in sex with me? So yeah, I just don't think that it's an across the board sure. answer. I think every, I think that sexuality is as unique as your thumbprint everybody's is different. Everybody's is unique. And when it comes to your sexual wiring and your life experiences, that is very, very true. Everyone's right. unique. So I, I have a theory on that. Cause I, and this has always been my, um, you know, pattern is I would have sex quickly with girls. Uh, we would sometimes continue sleeping together and drift into a relationship. 
it would always feel like something was missing. And then eventually I was like, I'd lose my appetite for sex with them. I was wanting to have sex with all the other girls, right. but not with them. And I- Because you were pursuing intensity instead of intimacy. That's good. See, I, I guess what I thought was the connection wasn't real. And I just didn't evaluate it on the front end. I was just looking at the you know surface level stuff, physical. Then I get into a relationship. And once, once you already had it X amount of times and it's like, well, it's not new anymore. Right. Versus and like seeing if there's anything more beyond that. Right. And what is there to work toward and to build if you've already, if you already had the icing on the cake, then the cake kind of loses its appeal. But yeah, I'm always encouraging people to slow that freight train down. Do not have sex first pop out of the box or even early on in the relationship. Take your time. Time is your friend. Really get to know that person. Make sure it's somebody that you can envision spending the rest of your life with before even entertaining the possibility of, of you know, doing anything physical because sex has the tendency to bond people together. And if this is not somebody you want to be bonded to for life, it's going to hurt one or both of you when it falls yeah, apart. Absolutely. I, I was always the guy that was like, I'm going to be like George Clooney. I'm not going to ever be, I'm not going <laughs> like to be was, tied down. Yeah, I'm not going to be tied down, but it would always, you know, like you're not that slick, you know, you're, you get bonded to people. Oxytocin is a real hormone. It's and, a thing. And all of a sudden you start feeling obligated to somebody you know, at some point, even if there was no, ex no verbal expectations, you know, you didn't, you didn't make any commitment or wanting know. them to feel obligated to you, but yeah. right. Or you, it just gets to the point. Like I, I got to the point where I either had to cut ties because I couldn't play the non-committal game anymore. Mm -hmm. So I either had to cut ties at which point they were going to go and, and someone else was going to sleep with them, which I did not want. <laughs> but I wasn't ready to commit either. Cause I, you know, and then it was, it's called the sex trap. And then all of a sudden yeah. you're you, you get stuck. You empty. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let, let's talk about the, a little bit about the book. Um, the, uh, every woman's battle book. Cause that, that's the, or the, that series is like the, the, the big seller. And I was just doing a little research on it to prepare for the interview. And one of the things that you talk about, um, you know, in the description of the book was using your real life stories and examples from your own struggles. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that. So you mentioned that you're married. How long have you been married? Well, currently I've been married two years after 27 years of marriage to my former husband, we divorced. And then that was 2016, two years later, uh, I married Dr. Charlie Myers. So okay. awesome. I've had a second go round at it. So the first marriage, uh, did you wait? Did you wait to have sex? We did. But I'll, I'll be honest, it wasn't by my choice. I had been a very promiscuous teenage girl from 15 to 20 years old. And at 22, I met my husband who was a virgin still at 27 years old. Wow. And so that relationship was, you know, he did not want to have sex until marriage. Believe me, I tried. He was very <laughs> committed to that. And just, you know, for the purpose of honoring him, I went along with that. And, I, and, I, and that it really didn't have anything to do with the divorce. And unfortunately, yeah. the, the reasons behind it are not something that I can divulge because sure. not every story is mine to tell. I can tell my stories. I can't yeah. tell other people's stories. But the fact that I waited until we married, I actually felt really good about all the, after all those years of promiscuity. Because like you, I realized that all that casual sex was leaving me empty and dry and my self-esteem was pretty low. Yeah. And so it was really through those years of recognizing what I was capable of by the help of God, by God's grace, that my self-esteem began to rise enough that I started studying human sexuality so I could teach people how to make better choices than I had made as a teenager. Yeah, that's awesome. So what were some of the struggles that you experienced? Well, I had to rewind the tape of what even got me started with sex at such a young age. Uh, I lost my virginity at 14, became sexually active at 15. And again, from 15 to 20 years old, I think at one time I had calculated that I'd had about 50 different partners. And at 27 was when I started unpacking my sexual and emotional baggage and really looking at what had propelled me in that direction in the first place. The first question out of my counselor's mouth was, tell me about your relationship with your dad. And at first it was like, I'm not here to talk about my dad. And, but in hindsight, she was asking the spot on question. And what I realized is that when I was four, I had an eight-year-old sister that died and 
my dad and my brother just emotionally shut down. It was like they were afraid of ever getting close to anybody again for fear of feeling that kind of pain if they lost them. Mm -hmm. So me being the baby of the family and used to getting all the attention and affection, all of a sudden it was a ghost town in my living room. Like there was nobody to comfort and connect with Shannon anymore. And so I think I just was so hungry especially for male attention and affection. Then when I started developing breasts and hips around 11 or 12 years old, I had three uncles in my family that had a game going on amongst themselves as to who would get Shannon in bed first. So it just tells you the kind of intense pressure that they were putting on me as early as sixth grade. And so I just remember- These are your uncles. These are my uncles. Yeah, gosh. Uh, I just remember spending two or three years trying to fight them off because I, you know, I knew that that was inappropriate, but that was what propelled me to give my virginity away to an 18-year-old boy when I was only 14 is because I didn't want my first sexual experience to be with my uncles, wow. with any of them. And so the pressure had just increased so much that I just, I didn't have a vision for, and nobody was talking to me about this kind of stuff. Back then, parents didn't talk about sex, pastors, youth pastors, nobody was talking about sex. So I did what human beings are prone to do. I tried to medicate my pain with sex because at 14, what else do you reach for? You're not drinking. You don't have access to drugs. You don't have a credit card. Like what else do you do except start having sex with your boyfriends? Sure. Now I can relate so much. My mom, got pregnant with me at 14 and um, had me at 15. And yeah. And like, no one ever talked about sex to me. There was no like strong male role model in the picture. You know, my uncle was a believer, but he, you know, he was working a couple jobs, so he wasn't really around. So like, you know, I might've heard people mention waiting in church. I think maybe, I don't remember, but like for me, I was always like, I couldn't wait to lose my virginity after I hit puberty. I was like, you to followed me, your base instincts. Yeah, right? I was, it's lack yeah. of knowledge that causes people to perish. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. So okay, that's great. So, um, how do you explain? So, is purity a big part of the conversations in your book? Like, are you talking to people a lot about waiting, or or is it not a big part of the books? In every woman's battle series, that was the whole message. Okay. It was really about uh, reclaiming your sexual integrity and developing a vision for a much healthier relationship before you became sexual and not letting the, the baggage from the past dictate your future. But I didn't want to just stop at the message of sexual integrity, Rob, because I felt like lots of people in the church were saying, just don't have sex, just don't have sex. But you know that analogy that when they train bank tellers to recognize counterfeits, they don't show them counterfeits. They show them real genuine dollar bills and then they can detect a counterfeit. I wanted to teach them what real love, real intimacy, real healthy sexuality looked and sounded like. And so I made that my mission over, uh, I mean, I've been doing this for 28, 29 years now. And so I wanted to talk not just about sexual integrity, but also about sexual intimacy. So now I probably do more work with couples struggling to find a sexually intimate connection. And I do the podcast called Sexual Confidence on Tap. I probably have more of those conversations than the purity or integrity conversations, simply because there are so many people out there having those conversations. It doesn't take long to find a book or a sermon on that topic, Mm -hmm. but find a pastor who's comfortable enough to talk to you about how to find the G spot and how to experience multiple orgasms and, and what multiple orgasms do to bond a husband and a wife together. Like those are the conversations I love to have now. Yeah, no, I, I, I was looking at some of your stuff. Uh, I looked at your podcast and I, you know, the, the workshop that you do is, um, the, what is the title of it? The sexually uh, confident couple workshop. Sexually confident couple four day intensive workshop. Right. And I love that you don't separate spirituality and sexuality. Like, you can't. Yeah. Well, a lot you of people really in the church, like, they make it dirty, you know, and, and that's why I tell people, even when I talk, cause a lot of times I'll, you know, I've spoken schools and churches and I'm like, look, God's not against sex. God invented sex. He wants you to have more sex, better sex, but you got to do it in the right order or you're going right. to jam yourself up. So I love that you don't, you know, cause it, it's not a religious message at all. Like you're talking no, about the G spot, the G spot and you're like, <laughs> 
You know, like that's got like God created the G spot. He created 100%. the woman's body to respond with all that. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. whole marriage between sexuality and spirituality, I liken it to a coin. It's two sides of the same coin. And if you split that coin in half and only have half of it, it loses, it has zero value zero value. And I'm not saying that spirituality without sexuality has zero value because I realize there are some people out there who consider themselves spiritual, but asexual, but for the most part, by and large, sexuality and spirituality, they fuel off the value of one another. I definitely think that I have learned more about God through my sexual journey, but I've also learned, you know, the reverse is also true. I've learned more about healthy sex as a relate, as a result of my relationship with God. And so I always encourage people, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Don't embrace one and not the other. The two hand in hand can create an amazing amount of fulfillment in your life. Yeah, I can't wait to experience that because I, I'm on this, I've been waiting for, you know, 15 of the last 20 years. I made a couple of mistakes. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes. I backslid for five years. And I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, but even during the 15 years, I've made a couple of mistakes. Um, but for the most part, I haven't had regular sex in 15 of the last 20 years. You're a different man than you used to be. Yes. That's for sure. But I don't even know. The thing is, is I've never been in love. So I don't even know what's out there. Like I'm just making this journey, believing that there's going to be, I, I know what lust is like. And look, look, it, it wasn't terrible. I mean, I, I, it, no, it wasn't like it, it led me into situations and it was empty, but like versus having no sex, like it was better than having none. Now, so I don't, but I've never been in love and I've never had what you're talking about. And I'm believing that there's something out there that's going to be like mind blowing that I'm going to be like, yes, this was worth it. I'm believing that for you. Uh I think that our life's journey parallels God's will for our lives. And I think that God had a mission for you that you needed to go through all that you've been through to be right where you are today. But I am believing that with you, my friend, that there is an amazing woman and an amazing relationship around the corner for you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. And if you want to introduce me to anyone, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> My wheels were actually already turning in that direction. <laughs> I'm like, who do I know? Who do I know? Um, so what do you tell, do you tell girls any, something different than boys versus like when you try to explain, you that know. That whole thing of let's put the boys in one room and the girls in another room and have different speakers. And that is ridiculous because men and women make these decisions together. Yeah. Why shouldn't they be armed with the same information? So whenever I'm talking about sexuality, whether it's male sexuality or female sexuality, I want the opposite sex to hear that conversation. I want them to walk into marriage someday with a fuller understanding of their partner. I think that that's one of the big problems in modern marriage today is that people are very self-aware and they walk into marriage thinking that they're ready, but they know very little about how to have empathy for their partner's journey or for their, you know, for their opposite sex counterparts, sexual template or whatever. And that can be a really shocking and eye-opening experience for them. Right. So, cause I, I think the way I look at it is I think the motivations of men and women are different. Like a girl, um, you know, intuitively knows more than a, a boy knows that you, you shouldn't be a slut, you know, like you shouldn't sleep with all these people or, or whatever. I, intuitively, they know a little bit more like, there's a reason that the prostitution is the world's oldest profession. It's never going to be men selling it to women. You know, excuse women. my language, but dick is free. <laughs> Vagina is not free. Vagina costs money. Women are the brakes and men are the gas. Yes. I think that, I think that God wired it that way for valid reasons, but I like to say it this way. Men give love to get sex, but women give sex to get love. And so from that regard, they are a little bit opposite of one another, but I spend a lot of my time educating people on how men and women are really not that different when it comes to sex because of how the body is wired, the brain, the pituitary gland, the vascular system, all of those things are actually very similar between men and women. So this idea that men are these you know, sexual creatures without much self-control and women are these frigid prudes who just want to sit, sit around and sip tea. It's like, yeah, no. Oftentimes, see, I, I work, you know, historically I've worked with a lot, a lot of women and so much of the shame that they bring into these workshops and these coaching sessions are not because they got lured in by some horny guy. It's because they found themselves in a sexual relationship and they were the ones who pursued. Mm -hmm. 
see, I just see a lot of times women are so hungry, you know, looking for love, desperate for that connection. And they will barter with their bodies in order to get what they're seeking. And so if that means paying sex is the price for the attention and affection they crave, oftentimes they'll pay it, but then they wind up empty handed. They, they don't get the prize that they think they're going to get. A lot of women assume, well, if I give him sex, he's going to want to marry me. Yeah. And I think that you know that that's oftentimes not the case. The opposite happened. Honestly, there's, there's a great uh, TED Talk I often reference called How Your Brain Falls in Love. And, and men and women release oxytocin at different times. Men release it when they commit. Women release it during sex. So like for literally, I'm not, I'm not even joking. The moment, like I, would, I had a lot of one night stands. The moment I ejaculated, any feeling I had toward that girl was gone. And mm -hmm. I was literally was trying to get out of there as fast as possible. Like, I know it was terrible. And I was like, what's wrong with me? Like oh. here, I was interested in this girl up until this point, I might've put in all this, you know, took them out, wine them, dine them, put in a certain amount of effort. And as soon as I get them into bed, it's gone. Right. And I, and Cotton I don't candy I, on your tongue. Where did yeah. it go? Yeah. So like, do I, do I remember correctly with, with your mom being an unwed teenage mom, was there no dad in your picture? So my mom actually did marry for her. I think might've been a shotgun wedding. She's from Kentucky also. So, um, uh, they, but by the time I was 10 months old, they were separated and I was, my grandmother had custody of me. So, okay. so, so I never, really he was never around. Yeah. He was never, so in, you never saw state. an example no. of dad pursuing mom, mom responding giddily. You, you never saw that love dynamic. Never. No, it was actually a very, you know, fairly sexual environment, you know, cause she yeah when she got custody of me she was 20 years old my mom retook custody of me and there was just you know there was like pornography magazines that you know i remember finding one in the house and then there was i remember like somebody having sex in the bed next to me when i was probably like seven um Talk about a desensitizing experience yeah, of course yeah. it felt casual to you yeah I, and I, you know I, I i'm guessing that's why i wanted to be a stripper from the time i hit puberty that was my life's dream was to become a male stripper which i accomplished and then you could get the attention yeah that you deserved as a child but didn't get yeah wow thank you never thought that about that every human being deserves attention especially children yeah we're powerless to meet our own needs that is our parents responsibility and when a parent fails to meet that child's need for attention and affection some some, you know, unconventional things happen. And so that's what happened in both of our lives in different times in different ways. But yeah, that, that's how it usually starts. So what, how do people satisfy that urge for love, let's say, in a healthy way? What do you tell your clients? Well, I, that's one of the reasons that I love what your organization does is you don't find love by getting alone, closing a door, taking off your clothes. I mean, as your testimony reveals, you can have sex with as many people as you want, but you may not find love. I think that learning to be in relationship with other people, learning to serve alongside other people, learning to talk about your spiritual journey with other people, learning to talk about your sexual and emotional journey with other people, forming those relationships that are built on common interests, uh, common passions, compassion, empathy, emotional connection. That's the foundation for love. Mm -hmm. And then if sex can be the icing on that cake, when you find the person that you are ready to spend the rest of your life with, then it has meaning, then it has purpose. So yeah. it's kind of like having a purpose-driven penis for lack of a better expression <laughs> or a purpose-driven vagina. Oh, you know, like can we, we co-author a book called The Purpose-Driven Penis? <laughs> I don't know if Rick Warren would appreciate it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you get the idea is that God designed it for a purpose. And when we use it for a different purpose, it's not going to have the same impact. It's not just cement that holds two human beings together. It's cement that holds a husband and a wife together in a committed relationship. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I, I, you know, I talk about when I really got serious, it was, it was all because the call of God on my life, you know, like some things he I, revealed to me that he wanted me to do is why I really got, you know, serious about waiting. And, it, and when I did, I had to cultivate real community 
because I didn't have, I, I, there's no point in like surrounding myself with, with people that were like surface level because they were just going to the bars and, and I wasn't interested in that anymore because I wasn't sleeping with girls. The bars had nothing to offer me. Like I didn't want to go drink because I might sleep with a girl. So I, so all of a sudden now I had to find real friends. And in order to have real friends, you have to add value to their lives. Yeah, and you, you have to show up emotionally. You have to show up. You have to invest and there has yep. to be reciprocity. And, yep. mm -hmm. and but that's how you learn to love. And, but what's amazing about that is when you have real friends around you, I, you know, and you start to get obedient in certain areas of your life, I believe that's when God reveals your purpose to you. And now you have a tribe of people that can actually contribute to you to help you get there. And then, you know, you're not waking up depressed anymore over the fact that you, you hate your shitty job. You know, now you're like, you're working towards something meaningful, you know, that is you're deeply passionate about and you have a lot of people around you to help you. And that's really what city fam has been for me. And so many others is like, but you know, it's, it, you can't deny the fact that like the sex without commitment breaks relationships. If I have a friend, it doesn't matter how, how good of friends we are. I could be as honest with you as the day is long and say, look, Shannon, I ju it's just going to be friends with benefits. That's it. I don't want any commitment. If we have sex and no I decide <laughs> I don't want to have sex with you now, I want to have sex with the next girl. You're going to be like, Rob's an asshole and you'll be gone. And, that, and then I lost you out of my life. And you might've been the person that had a piece to the puzzle. You know, mm -hmm. like there's a lot of beautiful girls in my life and thank God I'm, I, I didn't sleep with them because they're, you know, adding so much value to my life. Right. The old me would have pissed it away for what? 20 minutes of fun. Exactly. So exactly. And it's as you are following your passion and serving God and discovering who you are and discovering the fulfillment from serving other people that's when the magic will happen, that there'll be somebody else who's doing something very similar. They're pursuing God. They're just walking out their passion that you meet, that you connect. And it, it, again, it's just like magic. Um, after I had gone through my divorce and give myself a little bit of time to heal. And, and I also, you know, had a train wreck relationship after that. It's amazing how there has to be a sacrificial lamb after a big breakup, you know, but I had let a few key people in my life know that I felt ready to re-engage in a potentially romantic relationship. And it was a, a client who had gone on to study counseling who emailed me and said, hey, my professor of human sexuality, EKU, uh, has very similar philosophies and theologies as you. And I think that the two of you ought to meet. And so we started emailing about the books that we'd written and the conferences that we attend and, and it evolved from there. It's, it's just amazing how if you will just focus on God's calling on your life, he will bring other people to add that connection and that fulfillment that you crave. He knows that we feel these cravings. He is well aware, but oftentimes we are not ready for him to move. And I'm not saying that, you know, like I earned this blessing or anything. I'm just saying that to pursue maturity in your spiritual relationship is one of the best foundational moves for getting yourself ready for a real love connection with another human being. Fall in love with God and know how much he loves you and then when somebody else comes along, because you know how to love yourself and know how to love God and be loved by God well, loving that other person, including that other person in this triangle is not that big of, of a game changer. Yeah. So is masturbation a sin? As you were talking, I was just thinking, I don't know why that question popped in my head. I'm so glad you asked the question because what single person or even married person who has differing sex drives with their partner, what, what human being doesn't want to know that? Well, I'll just put the question back on you, Rob. Where in scripture are we told that masturbation is a sin? Trust me. I, I, it's, I mean, besides the one guy who <laughs> spilt his semen on the ground, it says, and God was mad at him. That's really, that's the, it's kind of a stretch to say. But that but, has nothing to do with masturbation. He was having sex with his brother's widow. as it, He was not masturbating at all. He was shirking his family responsibility right. to inseminate her with a child. So what about the whole if you lust after a woman in your mind's eye, you commit adultery in your heart. Is that? I'm glad you asked that one too. So first let's establish there is no scripture forbidding masturbation. And actually some biblical scholars say that the passage of scripture about draw from your own well, drink from your own cistern, that is not just about uh, resisting adultery. Okay. It, that it could also very well apply to the single person of just not looking to somebody else's spouse to fulfill you either because you can fulfill yourself. But let's look at Matthew 5 for a second. I'm so grateful for my hermeneutics class that taught me how to really properly interpret scripture. 
in Matthew 5, where it talks about if you even look upon a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart, gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Let's look at who was speaking, who is he speaking to, what words was he using, who was, what was happening in the cultural context at the time. Jesus was speaking to his disciples and the others who had gathered on the sermon during the Sermon on the Mount. He was referring to the, the Pharisees' notion that they were good enough to get themselves into heaven, that sure. they didn't need this coming Messiah. And so he reached into their lives and pulled out the most common thing that they do every day, multiple times a day, just as an example of this is enough to keep them out of heaven. They're going to need the blood that I shed for them. Yeah. So this passage was never intended to be a sexual doctrine. This was a salvation doctrine. And when people try to turn it into a sexual doctrine, it goes really awry. And this is one of the reasons that I started studying sexual fantasy and all the things that I did to write the book, The Fantasy Fallacy. When I was a teenager, I was staying with my aunt and uncle. My aunt proceeded to tell me a story about how she invited a neighbor to church one Sunday, an unchurched neighbor. And the pastor eisegeted this passage of scripture and taught it as a sexual doctrine versus a salvation doctrine. Thursday of that same week, my aunt gets a call from this lady's husband saying, I think you need to get down here right now. She arrived just before the ambulance. The woman was curled up in the fetal position, holding a spoon in her hand, and she had literally gouged her eyeball out of the socket Holy because she cow. was having, she was having thoughts of having an affair with someone. And of course, nobody knew that at the time. And she thought the only way that she could get right with God and have him deliver her from this temptation is if she did, if she did what the Bible told her to do. Wow. Now, was Jesus speaking literally when he used this reference? Absolutely not. Like the entire church would be walking around blind and, yeah. and no hands if Jesus intended it to be literally and if it was about a, a sexual doctrine. So we have to interpret scripture properly. What the scripture is saying is we need Jesus to get into heaven. That's it. End of discussion. All the stuff about the sexual stuff, the immorality, the fornication, so much of that was in reference to temple prostitution. But it, it certainly does not say that if we even have a sexual thought, we've already committed a sin and we're going to hell. For example, let me ask you a series of questions, Rob, that I think will be really enlightening to your listeners. Number one, was Jesus tempted sexually? He said he was tempted in every way. So yes, he was. Exactly. So did Jesus have sexual thoughts and feelings? I mean, not to the point that he sinned, but uh, probably. It, how can you experience a temptation if you didn't even have a thought or a feeling in that direction? Isn't yeah, that what a temptation sure. is? Yep. Right. Yes. So of course he had thoughts and feelings. So are sexual thoughts and feelings a sin? No, no. It's according to what you do with them. And Jesus showed us that you can have them and not act out on them and not sin. So this notion that sexual thoughts are a sin, we've got to get away from this teaching because it literally is causing people to leave God and church and religion at breakneck speed because they know their sexual thoughts and feelings. They're intimately acquainted with those. They can't deny them. So they assume God would never accept me because I can't get rid of these sexual thoughts. So I just have to leave God. I'm, I'm going to be an atheist or an agnostic. No, you can have sexual thoughts and still be in right relationship with God. Again, it's what you do with them. And even if you do act out on them, like you did for a long season, like I did for a long season, God hasn't gone anywhere. He is still there. He loves us just as much as he ever did. So let's just stop teaching this notion that if we have sexual thoughts, we've sinned and it, well, it's over for us. We must not be a real Christian because nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. But so like, how do you feel about NoFap? You know about NoFap? What is no fat? It's basically like no male masturbation. It's seminal retention where if you retain your semen and it gives you like, you know, um, energy and you can super focus and all yeah, that. Exactly. I think for a season and for a purpose, it's kind of like fasting. You know what? If I give up food for, you know, two or three days so that I can pray and immerse myself with water in the scripture, that's going to be a good thing for two or three days. When we multiply that out two or three months, my body is going to pay a high price. So I don't think that it's a lifestyle, but I do think that it's a good exercise to just help people rein it in and get reconnected with God and with their bodies so that when they do experience a seminal ejaculation, that it, it, it's not just a thing that they do every single day, that it has, has more significance in their life. And I think that that makes them a healthier partner long-term. If they know 
what makes their body feel good, they will be able to communicate that to their partner. But so oftentimes women especially go into an intimate relationship, get married. They have no idea what makes their body feel good. His, the, the husband is like scrounging around trying to figure out how to pleasure her. She is, she is worthless when it comes to teaching him. She cannot be a good teacher. So he can't be a good student and it can wreak havoc in a lot of couples lives. And so, you know, 25 years ago, I was the abstinence educator. I was the purity movement, you know, leader type of a thing. In this era, what I'm seeing is that a lot of times that purity movement caused people to be so sexually repressed and shut down that they walked into marriage thinking that this wedding band was going to cure everything, but that there's so much sexual tension there because of ignorance. Now, I'm not saying that to cure that ignorance, you should have had sex before marriage. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying, though, is that when you go into marriage, you need healthy education to understand what your body is capable of doing, what your partner's body is capable of doing, what you're capable of creating together. This whole notion of we'll figure it out, yeah, 30 years later and they still haven't figured it out. I've been coaching couples just this week that, are, that have been married 32, 37 years. They still don't know how to make her orgasm. Can you imagine 30 years of inorgasmia in a marriage relationship and the frustration that that has created for both of them? Yeah. But I would say, so like uh, going back, cause I don't want to, I don't want to exit off this topic yet, but like, if I'm thinking about something that I did with a girl, like, so you, first off, let me ask you this. You're not pro pornography. No, I'm not pro pornography, but I'm not going to throw a stone at someone who's at someone whose journey has taken them down that path because not. it's a very common path. Do yeah. I, do I prescribe it? No. Yeah. Do I condone it? No, but I'm not going to condemn people for going in that direction because we are so curious, especially American culture. We're all about sexual stuff, but not really about teaching it well. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes people will look to pornography as a sex educator. It's not a very effective one. Right. And it creates all kinds of cockamamie appetites and skews their perspectives yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But the individual, I will fully support them on their journey to come out of that because eventually people wake up and recognize I yeah. am fueling this, this hunger, not satisfying it. Yeah. But let's say you have a, a you know, like, cause I, I recently made the commitment to never look at porn again. It, was, it wasn't something I did a lot anymore, but occasionally if I got really depressed or really angry, resentful at God, I just wanted to be like, shake my fist at him. I would, you know, I'd look at it and I made a commitment recently to never do it again. Um, but, you know, there have been times even in the past where it's like, I'll draw up a memory, you know, something that I've done in the past and masturbate. And to me, that is sin because I'm, I'm delighting in evil. You know, the word, the Lord says, you know, the word says, do not, you know, rejoice rejoice in evil or de delight in evil, but rejoice, right, but delight in the truth. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, so I'm delighting in evil where I'm, I'm, you know, remembering something I did that I know was wrong. And so to me that, you know, that is kind of like, I don't think it's wrong to have the thought or the temptation, but then when I go take it across that line, I right. do think I'm sinning. And, and then I'm well, saying it, it's probably the least bad thing I could. Well, here's feel. the thing. I'm glad that your conscience is soft enough that you recognize that that's probably not a healthy thing for me to do, right. but you've never had, you said you've never been in love. Mm -hmm. You've never had a marriage such that you have healthy sexual experiences that you can draw from to fuel your thoughts while you're masturbating. Because exactly. there are a lot of people on the planet who have zero qualms about masturbating. And it's often because they can draw on really healthy, intimate experiences that they've had from their past or sometimes the fantasies that their brains are, are going down are things that they would never in a million years do in real life anyway. That's what I learned when I was studying to write the fantasy fallacy is that if you make a list of your greatest trials, traumas, and tragedies in life, and then you make another list of your most unconventional fantasies, like being a stripper or being a promiscuous teenage girl or whatever. Having a threesome, whatever. Exactly, whatever. If you hold those two lists next to each other, they're mirror images of one another. Because the way that God designed our brains is that we compartmentalize pain long enough to make room for pleasure. We can't experience intense pain and intense pleasure at the same time. So our brains create a story that compartmentalizes that pain. It doesn't mean that you'd actually act out on it. And the reason I think that that is so important for people to hear is two reasons. Number one, like I said earlier, I don't want people feeling as if they have to run away from God because of the thoughts that go through their head when they're masturbating, because God knows what you've lived through in your life 
he knows what storylines you have to create in your head to release an orgasmic response. But the other side of the coin is I don't want people feeling as if they have to go out and act out their fantasies in order to find fulfillment because your fantasies are not a roadmap to future fulfillment. They're a roadmap of your rocky past. So not to focus too much on you, but let me just take that as an example since it's been part of this conversation. If someone had taught you in your early age that, you know what, probably the reason that you have a fantasy of being a male stripper is because you didn't get the attention that you needed as a child. You can keep fantasizing about being a stripper, but don't ever go there because it's going to take you to a very dead end spot. If someone had had the insight and the compassion to teach you that, your life could have very well gone in a very different direction. And so we need to be teaching young people that, yeah, you're going to have certain thoughts and fantasies that are a mirror image of your life experiences, but it does not mean that you have to act it out. And in fact, just harnessing the energy that those thoughts create, knowing full well that I would never go there, you're using your brain for the purpose that God intended. And that is to create that arousal, that pituitary gland trigger, that uh, blood flow to the genitals. It, it does, it creates enough fulfillment of its own. It, you do not need pornography. You do not need acting out in crazy ways. Uh, you know, for centuries, people have masturbated without any sort of porn or external impetus. This is how God wired the human body. But our generation has really stripped its gears by doing all this crazy stuff that we've seen in pornography. And this is, you know, this is our, our method of education, but it has not taught us well. It has not taught us to have relationships and to be in love and to serve and be served in a healthy, intimate relationship. Yeah. I still go back to the whole, a thought leads to an action. If I'm having thoughts about things, whatever it is, however weird my you know, fantasies are, eventually if I, if I keep feeding that animal, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Like uh, Joyce Meyer, you know, battlefield of the mind, like mm -hmm. you have to take every thought captive, you know, right. where, or else you're, you're letting a seed, potentially start to take a root. I don't disagree with you, but based on my research, let me, let me just round out the story yes. because again, I do not disagree with you, but I think that you're probably sexually experienced enough to know that there's this little window of time in between you getting really, really aroused and you getting orgasmic that your brain starts entertaining thoughts of things that you wouldn't ever normally do. And there's a big difference between that little window of time where you're safe, you're protected, your brain is going somewhere and you would never actually do it versus now I'm going out of my way to see if I can make this happen. I was doing an interview with James Robinson and, and he said it best. He said, lust is not thinking that something is attractive or even feeling sexual thoughts towards someone or something. Lust is when you go out of your way to make something yours that does not belong to you. So it would be totally different if you were going through those masturbatory expenses or experiences and then getting online to try to find someone to come over and be a part of it next time type of a thing. Like you have to know where to draw that line, but the whole thing of taking a thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. Paul didn't say what, well, look at how Paul worded, worded it. He said, take every thought captive. He wasn't saying don't have the thoughts at all. He was saying the thoughts that you will have as a human being don't let that energy bleed out of what it was intended to do. And that was either satisfy you as a single person or connect you with your mate. So in my opinion, taking the thought captive and making it obedient to Christ is harnessing that energy and sharing it with no one other than my husband, no one. Yeah. And so may I be very, very vulnerable with Absolutely. your audience? Absolutely. Because I suspect that you have really trained them to be very comfortable with these kind of conversations because of how open and transparent you are. So I'm going to go back to that. Remember how my journey all started when I was four and my eight-year-old sister died? Sure. So the interesting thing is that when I discovered masturbation at 18 years old, what I was noticing is that my fantasies were gravitating toward female to female intimacy. I had never had and don't know that I have ever had a heterosexual fantasy during that window of time between arousal and orgasm. This is the thought that comes to my mind. Have I ever entertained the thought of being with an actual woman? Heavens no. Have I ever had opportunity when I'm trying? Sure, but would I ever wanna go there? Absolutely not. I harness that energy and I bring it home to my husband mm -hmm. because I want to live inside of God's will for my life. And That's for good. my life personally, 
I do not perceive myself as lesbian at all. I'm a very heterosexual woman. I got sent to the principal's office in kindergarten for kissing Tom Davidson on the cheek during milk break. Like I've always been boy crazy. So we have to understand the things that we fantasize about when we're in our masturbatory experiences are usually not things that we actually want in real life, but learn the difference and don't go there. I love, uh, you know what I really like about that is I, I had a conversation with somebody, I think it was just yesterday and they were, they were talking about, you know, homosexuality. And, and my thought is, look, I can't deny the, what the word says about it. It's, I didn't write it, you know, but the word makes it pretty clear that it's sin. And I'm like, look, just because you like something doesn't mean it's okay. I used to like to do a lot of things with girls that were, I, I realized were wrong. Yeah. And I like to be a glutton, but it doesn't make it right. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make it right. But what I like about what you're saying is, you know, like, cause you have, I've seen, you know, you know, boys and girls from, well, most of the boys uh, that I've spotted, like from a young age, you could tell they were very feminine, you know, and they were going to, you know, they might've had the gay. You know, they're not going to be I a man's not, man growing up. They're not, it wasn't a gay gene, but you could see that that, that was going to be, something that they might have to deal with later and you so you think to yourself you're like well you know what about that but what you're saying is it's okay to have those thoughts but you just don't cross the line so i, I really like that because that actually gives somebody some freedom you know versus just again like you said i run, have to be a slave to it yeah you don't God. have to like, be a slave I, I have, to anything yeah i have gay friends uh you know that i I tell them, I, I don't want to say, look, I'm not going to tell them that homosexuality is a sin because I, I'm not trying to put a barrier between them and God. What I'd say is, look, if God's got a problem with it, he'll let you know. Just get close to him. And That's what a I like great about, piece of advice. Yeah, so because there was a lot of things that he put his finger on in my life that I, I didn't know was wrong initially. And t he told me later, okay, now we have to deal with that. So, but a lot of, a lot of times homosexuals won't want to come to God because they think, Oh no, he's going to tell me this is wrong and I don't want to give this up. So I just would rather not have a relationship with him. And they think that Christians are going to judge them and yeah. oust them from the tribe. And who wants to feel that? Yeah. But I like what you're saying. I do. I actually feel like that gives them, you know, and, some freedom. And let me add something too, because usually after I do an interview like this, I will get lots of emails from women saying, oh my gosh, you said the exact thoughts in my head that I've never felt the freedom to say to another human being in my entire life, but I also have lesbian fantasies and have always wondered, does that make me a lesbian? Well, and then they'll say, but I didn't have a sister that died. So what is this all about for me? Oftentimes I will learn that they had a similar circumstance, like with my uncles, where they had a male in their lives that was pushing an envelope that was pressuring them that maybe even sexually abused them. So, okay, we have intimacy with our moms, our sisters, where we feel so, so comfortable bonding and connecting. And then you couple that with, but I was so abused by a male. Of course, that's going to create a template for a lesbian fantasy, but it doesn't mean that you're homosexual. It doesn't mean that you don't love and are fully committed to your husband. It doesn't mean that you can't have great orgasmic sex with your male spouse. So let's just not give our sexual fantasies more power than they deserve, because my philosophy is you control your fantasies. Don't let them control control you because as paul said we aren't to be a slave to anything but how many people do you know that did exactly what we did in certain seasons of our lives they have become slaves to what they think they need instead of pursuing what they actually need i love it that's good so i think it's a good time to transition i want to take a couple uh questions from from listeners uh one one girl asked how can girls hold the decision to remain sexually pure in balance with a genuine warmth and willingness to remain open to the appointed partnership God has. She, they went on to say, sometimes I wonder if I come across cold and closed off to dating because I'm becoming steadily more guarded of the innocence I feel is my responsibility to protect. Yeah, that's such a great question. And I really applaud her honesty and her integrity. I will say that there have been clients through the years that when they tell me how they conduct themselves on the first or second or third date, I'm not surprised that there wasn't a fourth or fifth or a sixth because there is an uptightness of, you know, like he put her hand or put his hand on the small of her back to usher her through the restaurant door and she, what are your intentions? You know, it's like she's grilling him on the first or second date and beating him over the head with the Bible about how she's going to be pure on her wedding day. And you know what? That's just really overkill. Uh, but I honor a person's desire, uh, you know, to live a life of integrity. And I think that there are words that you can choose that communicate that, that are far less judgmental, far less preachy, far less prudish and rigid sounding, because let's be real. 
No individual, male or female, wants to walk into a marriage with a partner that they have felt zero sexual chemistry with. So I'm not saying that they need to go all the way, but I am saying that there, there needs to be a level of energy exchange where they can envision that there can be sexual fireworks between the two of them at the right time at the, in the designated season of their lives. So going back to when uh, I was introduced to Charlie via email, we're talking on the phone, we lived four hours apart. So we had a long distance relationship and he learned what I do and looked at my website and everything. And he was like, you know, well, I just want to honor you, you know, with whatever boundaries you feel like we need to have prior to marriage. And, and he said, but I will be honest with my former relationship. There's just a lot of sexual disappointment there. And so I have some anxieties around that. And he said, I will wait as long as you want to wait and, and to do whatever you, you know, want to do. I don't have to do anything prior to marriage if that's what you want. But he said, if we don't do certain things, though, we need to have a lot of conversations around them so that I know what to expect walking into this marriage. And so I just communicated to him, you know what? I am not a 15-year-old girl. I am not you know, like I, I'm comfortable in my own sexual skin. I think that we can have a very healthy dating relationship, a very healthy courtship that we can sense and envision what's possible. And that together you and I over time are going to figure out what do we feel comfortable with prior to marriage and what do we want to save until after marriage? And we walked it out exactly the way that we laid it out. There was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no anxiety. There was no tension. It was just, this is what we feel is best. And we did it as two adult people, age 50 and 51. And it, so it wasn't that dynamic of teenagers in the backseat of the car and making all these rules and regulations, but pushing the envelope and crossing the line and then feeling guilty, guilty about it and then repenting and then going back to doing it again. It's like, no, we're adults and we're going to handle this in an adult spiritual way by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I have no regrets about how we conducted our dating and courtship. And I think that it really set our marriage up very strong, but I, I didn't feel as if I wanted to be just like, ah, you know, like I know that people can't see what I'm doing on the podcast, but you know, like holding the sign of the cross at him and being like, no, don't touch me. You know, I, I wanted, I wanted to know that we could comfortably exchange, but there's a difference between exchanging a sexual type of energy and chemistry and having sex. Yeah. So Here's you were talking deal. about like frequency, like I like to have sex this many times. This is the kind of things I'm into. You were Exactly. This is my fantasy template. This, this is how I envision a comfortable experience going between a husband and a wife. This is, this is off limits for me. I find this disgusting. We needed to have those kind of conversations. We didn't want any huge surprises post-marriage. We had already been through our divorces. We never wanted to do that again. And when people walk into marriage, not having healthy conversations about what healthy sexuality is going to look like between the two of them in their marriage, they are setting themselves up for a quick divorce because of sexual shock and, you know, just the, the repercussions that come from walking into it blindly. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice. I like, I like the communication piece. Hopefully, um, we got that question answered. I think we did. Uh, so the next, next question from a listener is, do you have any specific advice for widows on remaining sexually pure? She says it's not popular or understood amongst so many as to why you would, would or should want to abstain from sexual relationships among those who've had a devastating loss. A lot of advice I've read on these groups encourage the opposite as a way to be comforted. What the woman went on basically to ask, uh, She's basically, she said the one thing that has stopped her from, from engaging in that activity was soul ties. She said, I, wanted, I didn't want to be bound by something I should have, I should have never entered into. Uh, what advice does she have for widows who want to obey God's word, but still have a struggle with sexual desire? And see, I think that that's where the masturbation conversation comes in real handy. I remember when I was doing Sexy Marriage Radio podcast, this guy contacted me. He was 70 years old. He said, my wife died one year ago and my libido disappeared. And he said, but it was almost as if on the one year anniversary of his death, of her death, it came rushing back. But he said, I can't see myself ever getting remarried at this season of my life. I don't think my children would adjust to it well. And so he said, would it be a sin for me to masturbate so that I can just date women, go out to dinner, go to a movie, enjoy companionship without any expectation of sex being a part of the equation. I told him, I can't imagine a more honorable reason to masturbate, you know, to, so that you don't feel tempted to take advantage of the woman that you have no intention of marrying. You just want to enjoy time with like that's, 
that's a beautiful thing. I got, I got mixed feelings about that. I'll tell you why. One, I see the value in it, 100%. I, I actually think about the scene from Something About Mary. He goes, you wouldn't go out with a loaded gun, would you? <laughs> so, but one of the times, okay, in the last nine years, I've had two mistakes, two single nights. Um, and the one, the first time I was, I think I was, I had been abstinent for three years at the time. And it was a girl, she was a friend. We were, she, we were getting flirty and close and I felt like it was getting dangerous and um, had a conversation with her about it. She made me feel like it could never happen. It was stupid for me to think that. I, I, I let myself believe Take it. Take it as a challenge? No, 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 honestly, I knew it could happen, but she made me believe it. Like I, I let her fool me. I knew, I knew it was dangerous. So you lowered your guard. She knew it too. She wasn't where I was with the whole commitment thing. So I remember her, like we were gonna go out and grab sushi and I, I rubbed one out because I was like, I didn't want to be tempted. Mm -hmm. Literally an hour and a half later, we had sex. She came but over you're... watching the movie. So that didn't help me. If anything, I think I fed the dog. I made it stronger. <laughs> because but again, I... everybody's sexual journey is unique. So you can't create a philosophy across the board of it's never a good idea for anybody to masturbate because one time I did it in an hour and a half, I was having sex with somebody that I wish I hadn't had sex with. You can't create uh, an across the board philosophy. But you were in a season where you, you had conditioned yourself that I'm starving this, I'm starving this, I'm starving this. And so it's kind of like the person who's on a diet who doesn't let themselves have anything good. And then you put them in a bakery and there's no holes barred, you know? So I, I and I do also think that people who've had a long-term healthy marriage relationship who have tasted what it's like to have a genuinely passionate sexual experience in the right context, of course their sexual appetite is gonna continue on even after their mate passes. But my advice to that individual, you know, I don't know what age widow this person is, but let me just say that there is no shame in wanting to remarry. And I say that because I, I read a book recently, uh, Sheryl Sandberg wrote a book called Option B about how after her husband died, just how she coped with being becoming a widow. And she wrote that it, that our society expects a man to remarry after he is widowed within like a year of her death. But women, the average is a very small percentage of them remarry and it takes them an average of like seven years because there's almost like a shame that woman that a woman should want or need a man. I just want to remind everybody that loneliness is not a sin. Loneliness was a condition before the fall of man. Adam was lonely. And what did God do? Did he chastise him? Did he ridicule him? No, he, he brought a companion to him. Yeah. So it's okay to say, I had a really great marriage. I miss my partner. I need a season of healing before I'm ready to move on and have another relationship. But there is no sin in wanting to remarry at some point. But if you don't want to remarry, I recommend that either you get comfortable abstaining entirely, and some people can become totally celibate and not, not masturbate at all. But if that's not you and you have a high sex drive and you feel the need to satisfy that because you don't want to gravitate toward a partner, that actually works for a lot of people. So you have to know you and you have to be guided by your relationship with the Holy Spirit on what's right for you at each season in your sexual journey. Yeah, she, she ended that question with the lack of intimacy or companionship has seemed overwhelming. And I, man, I empathize because it's such a hard, I mean, that's my, that's my heart as city fam is my why, because this waiting journey, like when I was sexually active, I, I got, I, I didn't have deep relationships and it led me to feeling depressed, but I always had people around even though the relationships weren't deep. So it was a different kind of loneliness. Mm -hmm. When you're waiting and you're, you don't have community, it's like, you're, you're just alone. You're like, oh my gosh, loneliest feeling in the world. Yeah. There's right. nobody around Actually. you, nothing to do, no one to do it with. And it's, it's just the most, it's the hardest thing to do. That's why I believe a lot of people get on, you know, get on dating apps because they're just, they're bored and lonely. If you could give them things to do like that, were fun without regret is what we call our right. friends. Then, then they're less likely to do the wrong thing because they have options, you know? Right. Absolutely. Well, and I have to correct something that I just said. I said that, oh, that, that's like the worst kind of lonely. But 
I have a lot of clients who are in marriage relationships where there isn't sexual intimacy, there isn't camaraderie and companionship, but there's no hope of having that with someone else because they're married and they're taking their vows very seriously. That is the loneliest kind of lonely right there. Amen. Chris, Chris Rock said, better to be single and lonely than with the wrong person and unhappy. And yeah, I, I'd rather someone amen. be single and satisfied than married and miserable. But I'd rather even be single and lonely because like you said, at least I have hope. I, I have hope that I might meet the person tomorrow. When you're exactly. married to the and, wrong person, you're uh -huh. it's over. Where, where's the hope? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that's where a lot of women will confide that their, their only hope is if, they're, if God takes their husband prematurely. Like they, they aspire to being a widow because that loneliness runs so deep. And that's not an indication of like, they're such horrible people. They're wishing their husband's dead. They're just being honest about they have a deeply felt need that is going unfulfilled and they're in the relationship where God ordained this need to be filled. And it is very confusing and bewildering. And the message that they internalize is what's wrong with me that I can't get my husband to connect with me. Or you know, we can't assume that it's always the wife. A lot of times it's a husband that feels like, why won't she connect with me? And what's wrong with me that she doesn't want to have sex with me? I will just tell you that most oftentimes it's not about you at all. It's about them. There's a reason why they're avoidant or resistant or skittish or whatever the case may be. That's where I highly recommend that you get a coach or a counselor that understands human sexuality. Because here's the thing. You can go to a counselor who's never had a single human sexuality class. You can get licensed as a counselor without ever taking such a class. Pastors can get ordained without taking a single human sexuality class. You need to seek out someone who has training in human sexuality before you can really hope to understand their journey, your journey, and how your two journeys fit together to create what you guys have and how to change that and create what you want to have. Yeah. I need to do a little more research. I was recently someone, uh, I saw a therapist for a short time and they said that I had an avoidant attachment style. Mm -hmm. So I, I know you had talked about having deeper levels. Of, I think this is from, um, every woman's battle is having deeper levels of intimacy with your, your husband or your husband to be. And what it made me think about was I, I talk a little bit about, you know, at least with my theory is, is when you're, when you're treating sex, like it's recreation, it can cause intimacy problems where you, you know, like, and you, you, you have a hard time getting close to people um, for whatever reason. And I feel that within myself. And I'm wondering if that avoidant attachment style isn't from some of that. What? Well, your attachment style is actually formed in the first year of your life. Really? So I will tell you that that avoidant attachment style that formulated in your childhood, that has had a big role in you choosing casual sex because as an avoider, you don't have to commit. But what I hear you saying is that you're mature enough in your life's journey and in your walk with Christ that you're ready to operate in a, in a pattern opposite of what you were ingrained with and that you don't want to keep avoiding because you realize that it has led to multiple casual encounters that don't fulfill you. Because people who are avoiders, they can still have very vibrant, healthy relationships. It's just that your core need is time, space, and distance. But you can easily marry someone who has a similar need, or you can marry someone whose deepest need is closeness and connection. And the two of you learn to communicate in such a way that you're both getting your needs met in a back and forth tennis match kind of way. So it, it, being an avoider does not mean that you're doomed for life to never have a fulfilling relationship by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, good. I, I, I hope not. I, there's, there's no attachment style that can't learn to have a healthy relationship. That's good. Yeah. And I, I, I do believe that, I, at least I hope that God can restore some of that. You know, if he makes all things new, the word says that even if you do jack yourself up a little bit, if you sin against your own body, as the word says, and you, 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 you damage some of your, that connection ability that I believe hopefully with time it, it repairs or God. You're repairs. not irreparable. No one is irreparable. No one. So thank you so much for coming on. I, I, I immensely enjoyed the conversation. I know the listeners uh, enjoyed it. Uh, where can people find you? What do you have coming up? What are you excited about? All that. Thanks for asking. 
they can find out more at shannonethridge.com. If you click on the workshops link, you can learn about the women at the well, the couples at the well workshops, and the sexually confident couple. We're postponing that until May of 2022 because there's all this COVID stuff and the travel stuff, but it's going to be in Belize. It's going to be unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and then they can also find the 22 books on there. But the thing that I'm most passionate about is connecting with individuals and couples one-on-one, uh, -on -one, over the phone, via Zoom, or if they really want to come to Richmond, Kentucky, I also do face-to-face -face intensives, three hours, six hours, two days, whatever they need. I love unpacking a person's sexual and emotional and spiritual journey and helping them make sense out of their story and create the ending that they really want. Because no matter what the early parts of their story uh, are, you can always have a plot twist. You can always change the trajectory of the main character, you, and create the life and the relationship that you want. So the coaching is something that they, I, I certainly encourage people to look into. That's awesome. Well, and thanks. also there's a, a link where they can schedule a free 15 minute consultation. If they just want to chat for 15 minutes about what the coaching relationship might could do for them as, yeah. as a woman, as a man, as a couple, uh, some people want to reach out to me about their teenager or their college student or whatever regardless of who's struggling in the family and in what way, if it has anything to do with, with sexuality, uh, relationships, love, intimacy, I would love to connect with you. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to put the links in the show notes for sure. So I've, actually even on the, uh, on this live, I'll, I'll, I'll drop everything. in so people can get it. Awesome. But, but uh, I'm going to send you a copy of my book. I would love for you to look at it, you know, give me any feedback. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having you on our podcast later this season for a double episode because I'm intrigued, pal. I am totally intrigued to hear more about your story and where where God has led you as a result of your life's journey. And uh, yeah, I know that that my audience will be tickled to learn about you. I can't wait. It's October. What? We're doing that? Uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my <laughs> head, but I know that it's lined up for about the middle of this fall season. So October sounds about right. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. Okay, well, thanks again for coming on, Shannon. You bet, Rob. Appreciate Happy it. Labor Day. All right, bye. Talk to you later.